Scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town to town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of the Lord. May it dwell richly in your heart this morning. People tend to think in categories. That's often the way that our minds formulate what we experience. And some of these categories can be valid as organizing principles for life, for understanding the world. I had one that was established kind of on an ad hoc basis. I don't watch a lot of movies personally, but I remember the first time uh, and a lot of you have probably seen this movie called Napoleon Dynamite. It's about 15 years old. And I remember the first experience that I had watching this movie, and I thought, my goodness, this has got to be the single dumbest movie ever to cross the screen. And I just remember having a visceral contempt for this movie. Um, I don't know what got me to watch it a second time, but the second time that I saw it, my goodness, this is the single funniest thing I have ever seen in my life. It was... I had a similarly visceral reaction, and for at least a little while, there were two kinds of people in this world. There were people that had experienced the joy of this innocent little indie film, and then there were people that hadn't, or maybe they'd only seen it one time, the poor benighted souls. People tend to categorize the world using the lens that they've got on at the time. Jesus' way of categorizing the world makes much better sense, and it's what he gives us in this in this parable, in this passage, and although it only consider, it considers four types of soil, but really it's about two types of people, two types of people with differing responses to God and his word and his Christ. His is a message that can take some time for people to get. By this time in the story, as far as we've gotten in Luke, we see that the way that he tells it, we've already seen how some of these responses might look. We've run across Peter, who's confronted face-to-face with the Lord, who approaches him and says, cast out your net for a catch. Then when he realized that it was the Lord of glory standing right in front of him, what did he say? He said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And he falls on his face immediately because he recognized right then what his, exactly what the value of his righteousness was worth right next to 
this Lord. He quits his career on the spot and starts following him as he's requested to do. He received the word of the Lord immediately. And then there are other types of people, other types of responses. One is the pharisaical response with which we've been confronted a few chapters ago. These are folks for whom self-righteousness was the most valuable asset that they possessed. They had, in fact, made a career out of their self-righteousness in, in a way, but Jesus insists to them that theirs is a shaky foundation because although they embrace the word of God, the law of God is authoritative, they do it to glorify themselves. They do it for their own glory. They do it for the glory of, they do it to glorify themselves in the eyes of others and in their own eyes. So when he goes and he suggests to them in the synagogue that God's plan for the world is to bring glory to himself by flinging wide the doors of his kingdom to people that they don't like, people like Syrians and people like lepers and Syrian lepers, they become outraged and what do they do? They try to throw him off of a cliff. On another occasion, he confronts the Pharisees in the field when he's with the disciples, and he says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, and rather than fall on their face, as Peter did, they turn their noses up. So there are a number of responses to Jesus. Jesus is a divisive figure in a sense, not in the sense that he's fomenting division intentionally, but in the sense that his announcement of the kingdom of God is one of God's righteousness over and against the righteousness of man. And that is a provocative message if you're a self-righteous person. It's a call to all people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's here now. Change your mind about the value of your own righteousness and what it's worth. So by now we have this this mixed multitude that, that it mentions at the beginning of the passage. You have lots of people trailing Jesus, this teacher slash miracle worker slash controversialist, and each of them have their own ideas and preconceptions and hopes and expectations. People still have their own, those same kind of ideas today about what Jesus is and what he came to do, because this is a man with a compelling presence. It's, at the very least, if you're not compelled by it, it's interesting. You have no idea what he's going to do next if you're following him. And that's, these folks in this particular passage had no idea either. He might lay his hands on someone uh, and heal their ailment, their leg. Uh, he might restore their sight. He might do an impromptu exorcism and cast out a demon. <clears throat> he might speak a few words of wisdom that cause a riot to break out, perhaps. This is, this is a, a real curiosity, to, to, put it, to put it mildly, but no person can remain indifferent to this man, his work or his, his teaching, and all of this is still true. No person can encounter Jesus Christ and remain indifferent to him. He commands a response from everyone. There's a saying that there are preachers that you can listen to, and then there are preachers that you've got to listen to, and Jesus was one of the latter. So when we come to verse 4, we see a great crowd, people from town after town. Thousands of people have probably uh, gathered to hear what he had to follow him. And given the kind of consternation, that he, the kind of confusion that's left in his wake, after all, I mean, even John the Baptist last week when we heard the sermon wasn't too sure about who he was or what he'd come to do. So you would think that now would be a good time. Hey, Jesus, why don't you get up right now and give us some clarity about who you are and, and, and what you're doing? Then that's not what happens, is it? So instead, he gets up and he tells them a very mundane story about a farmer. 
And we have the full story in Scripture so that we can read it for ourselves and kind of get, and get the gist. I mean, we read the explanation of it afterwards, and it's readily available to us. But to give you some kind of idea of what it might have been like to be there at that moment, imagine what it would have been like if I just stepped up right to this mic and then told you a joke that not one of you understood. Not one of you got it. Some of you have understood Napoleon Dynamite, but not if I got up here and said something like, a man woke up this morning, he made some coffee, he had breakfast, he got in his car, and then he went to work. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You would be befuddled about what the purpose of the story was. So everyone within earshot, I mean, when he's telling the story about a farmer, they all understand agriculture. They are all part of this agrarian economy. And most of them were participants in it. They didn't need a farming lesson. So when he gets to the end and says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, what would the response would have been? It would have been, hear what? What, what did he say? What was the punchline? What did I miss? That would have been really awkward. So what's, <laughs> what's the point of this awkwardness? What is going on? If you've ever seen stand-up comedy, and I imagine most of you have seen stand-up comedy at some point, then you've probably seen a performance where a guy who keeps the entire crowd in stitches the entire time takes the mic and at the end he drops it and walks off the stage. That was, that's, we call it a mic drop. And so nobody told Jesus, you know, you don't get to drop the mic at the end of a, of a lousy sermon that nobody gets. I mean, we know that now that it's not a lousy sermon, but they would have thought, man, that Sermon on the Mount was impressive. You should have done it then, right? So what's going on now? Why this secrecy? Why, I mean, what, why is he less than clear about what it is that he wants everyone to know? And he, I mean, make no mistake, he's establishing authority. It's an authoritative statement to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's asserting his authority and the authority that's given to him as part of his divine prophetic mandate. He's asserting the authority of his own character and his word. And I mean, you read this kind of thing elsewhere in the scriptures. I mean, when Moses is getting ready to, he's sending them off, he's at the end of his life, and what does he say? He says, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Choose life. If you were there that day, you would have said, okay, yeah, that sounds good. That makes good sense. Life rather than death. I think I can do that. And Joshua is another such character, and what does Joshua say? He says, choose this day whom you will serve. That was a pretty clear message, I think. So make no mistake, that's what Jesus is doing, and we know this because when you get to the book of Revelation, what is the phrase that he uses to put his divine seal of authority as a signature in each one of the letters that he sends to the seven churches? He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus, in a sense, is not throwing down the mic. He's throwing the gauntlet down. He's offering a challenge. He's issuing a challenge to all these people to respond to him in faith, even though that they don't have a clue what he's talking about. And he's both the subject and the object of his own illustration. He's the sower sowing seed. This is about a sower. He's the sower in the sense, and the seed is the lesson that he's giving them in this moment. Nevertheless, the disciples, they... They asked for the inside baseball explanation. They said, tell us, tell us what's going on. And, and he says, okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what's going on. But before I do that, I'm going to tell you why I'm telling parables in the first place so that you can kind of make better sense of this. And this is very important for understanding Jesus' teaching ministry. 
He says in verse 10, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. What does this mean? Here again, Jesus is hearkening back to the words of Isaiah, just like he did when when he was in the synagogue, and he said, today the scripture that I've read to you was fulfilled in your very hearing. He's drawing the words, these these words from Isaiah come from that throne room scene in chapter 6, when God is giving Isaiah his prophetic mandate to go to Israel and preach. And what does God say? He says, by the way, Isaiah, they're not going to listen to a word that you have to say. And I want you to keep preaching until the entire nation is destroyed and people are carried off into exile, exile as captives. But that's half the reason I'm teach- I want you to preach. But the other reason that I want you to preach is because the message that I'm giving you is going to be a message of hope for the faithful remnant, for all those people that are carried off into exile, that they will have hope in a future deliverer who will come. In other words, Isaiah, there are two kinds of people. There are the unrepentant, and then there are the people who are the faithful remnant. And my message is going to, to accomplish my purposes in both of those categories of people. The same is true here with Jesus. So let me, let me press this point even further, perhaps. Think about the social dynamics of, of an inside joke. If you've ever heard an inside joke, then you know kind of how they work. Think about if some of us are standing around the, uh, somewhere around the coffee pot or the water cooler at work, and uh, heaven forbid we are talking about politics, and then I come up and I say, vote for Pedro. Then those of you who have seen Napoleon Dynamite, right, suddenly understand the joke. You know, those of you that don't are on the outside. That's, and we're done with that movie. But, I'd, but the, people who, the point is that there's a bond that's formed and strengthened by people who are privy to the joke. The people on the outside, it becomes clearer and clearer that there's a divide between those two people. The inside joke in this situation is a rhetorical device. It clarifies those on the inside from those on the outside. And so does the parable. In fact, that's part of its purpose. And I want to make something pretty clear here. I mean, Jesus does not tell parables for the purpose of excluding. He wants to include. He's gathering people to himself. But because of our natural and sinful tendency to put up barriers to, that reject God's word, God's logic, God's person, and his lordship over the world, we exclude ourselves. The, real, the reality of the situation is that some people will respond to the call and some people will not. And when John the Baptist says at the beginning of the book of Luke, he says his winnowing fork, he says this of Jesus, that his winnowing fork in, is in his hand and he intends to separate the wheat from the chaff. Jesus' preaching ministry is a function of that in this very way. Not that it establishes new barriers, but it casts light on existing barriers the ones that people erect to block out the claims of Jesus and his message. And as the, the parable draws people nearer to him, the distinctions between those two categories of people become all the more clear. Thankfully for those with stony hearts or those who don't want to, uh, d- that don't listen, there is, the word is a powerful thing. Jeremiah, in chapter 23 of his prophecy, says, it's not my, of, of the Lord, the Lord says, is not my word like a fire or a hammer that shatters a rock into pieces? That's what it can do to our resistance. 
That's part of the message of the parable. Some reject the message, some receive it and respond to it. Of course, we already recognize that the disciples are the good soil, right? Because Jesus tells them explicitly in verse 10, you're on the inside. And to you, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But that's, there's a clue that comes even before that. And if you catch it, what happens right before that? The disciples ask him, what does this parable mean? They receive and they respond with a question. The response of faith doesn't usually elicit an immediate gung-ho commitment, at least not for most people. We don't usually receive the word right off the bat with an aha, although sometimes we have those moments in Bible study as we go down the road, but that's generally later on. And you see, because when a seed germinates, that process is usually invisible to the casual observer. And when what it's sprouting is ready to break through the surface, sometimes there's a struggle there, just like the way that we can struggle at times with the core message of the gospel and our need to be saved. The seed can take time to sprout, and it takes time to grow and produce a harvest. I mean, you see, this, this parable really isn't about just a one-time event in which a person receives the word of God, although that is something that we all must do. I want to be clear about that. But especially in the South, we have this we love to say, I got saved, or I was saved, as though it was a one-time occurrence. But, and a God, of course, knows the exact moment in which he puts that seed in our heart. But as Paul, Paul says later on, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved. It is the power of God. It's an ongoing process. And in addition to being about our response to the word, this parable is also a description of the Christian experience given for those on the inside about those things that threaten to cut us off and choke our access to life in Jesus Christ and fruitfulness for Jesus Christ. It's important to understand here that Jesus only approves of the good soil, the last soil, the last one that he describes, that's, that's the Christian. That's the Christian's heart. And the sign that a God-wrought work of recreation has really happened is that the seed of the word eventually produces a harvest. So Jesus explains for the benefit of those on the inside. And we know this because it's only the people on the inside who ask him what he's talking about. So Jesus goes on to explain, the seed is the word of God. And some might ask, you know, you might ask, does that mean like the Bible, like, like this? Or does it mean Jesus himself, since John tells us that he was the Word, the capital W Word? And which one was it? And the answer to that question is yes. And I say that because if you receive Jesus, then you receive what he has to reveal to you. And if you receive what, what's in this book, then you receive Jesus as well, because as he says of himself, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Another reason that the farming metaphor here is so appropriate is the idea of soil. You and I are the soil. That's what he wants us to know. And it's, not, it's more than just a useful metaphor, of course. It's biblical truth. It's physical truth. If you go back to Genesis 2, it says that God formed Adam out of what? the dust, the dust of the earth, and that's essentially all he is until God breathes the spirit of life into Adam. In the parable here, it's the implanting of the seed of the word by the Holy Spirit that begins a work of recreation in us. So Adam was created and we are recreated when the word 
takes root in our hearts. And that only happens with the good soil. You can look at it from, uh, if, if you're into linguistics, you can kind of look at some of the, at the words that are used to describe where these seeds land. So some of them fall along the path, kind of on the, on the edges. Some fall on top of the rock. Some fall among the thorns, but it's only the good soil that the seed goes into. You have to receive Jesus' word into your heart. It has to change you from the inside out. That's what it's designed to do. And that's the only place that it can happen. So now we come to Jesus' description of the soils. The first bad soil, which is the road, is really hardly soil at all. It's, as he says in verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So the, the road, the soil kind of along the path is packed down and it's hard and it, it doesn't receive the, the seed. It rejects it instead and the birds of the air come for it. And it represents a hard heart. You see the seed bounces, bounces right off of it. And it, it rejects the word out of hand and in doing so, it's interesting that Jesus talks about the devil in this, in this passage, but when we reject the word in that way, we're kind of in cahoots with his with his evil designs. If you think about what's happening here, what was it that the devil did in Genesis chapter 3? How long has, Gen has the devil been interfe interfering with man's reception to the word? What was the question that he asked Eve? Yea, did God really say? <laughs> he's, he's trying to doubt. He's trying to sow seeds, his own kinds of seeds, of doubt of rejection, of pride in the heart of man and induce him or her to reject what God has to reveal. He's sowing his own seed and think of, that's just the, the nature of his two-faced treachery, isn't it? Think of, what he, think of what the devil does in different situations. He says to Eve, he says, God's not being good to you. If you listen to me, you can have everything that you want. But then what happens when he goes in front of God and says about Job in a different situation. So remember to Eve, he says, God's not good to you. But to God, he says, you know what? You're just too good to Job. And if you, would, if, if, you didn't, if you weren't so good to him, then he would reject you. That's the duplicity of the devil. And it's, it's, that's exactly what's being described here in the, with this soil. So how does this play out in, in our own context? This kind of response shows up in all kinds of ways, usually hostility, denial, maybe a feigned indifference. Some people would have you believe perhaps that the universe came from nothing, really is going nowhere, um, is destined for nothing, but when you confront them with the fact that only God can create from nothing, what's the response? A lot of times it's a response of hostility because they believe the devil's lie and they maintain that hostility a lot of times throughout the re remainder of their life. And of course it doesn't, it doesn't always look this way. Sometimes people dismiss the word of God as one among many sources of input for how to just live a moral life, how to live a decent life, how to be upright and moral, but they don't receive it as the story of the man who is mankind's only hope. Scary thing about this is when you reject the, the word of God, you've essentially affirmed your own righteousness as being sufficient, and this makes it more difficult to decide later on to turn back and receive it. I mean, if you look at what happens to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, you see that his, he 
progressively goes down this path. It's, it's, he rejects what Moses has to say to him. He hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. And then eventually it gets to where God is hardening his heart. He is, his, he is so committed to his rejection that he himself has set himself up for his own rejection. So if that's, that's, the, uh, that's kind of the message with the, with the first seed. And then the second, or the first soil, the second soil, of course, is the rocky soil, and it's essentially rootless. And now if you were a farmer in, in Palestine in this day, then you would have been really familiar with the kind of soil that's maybe about two inches deep, and it sits on top of this layer of limestone. It has no access to any of the nutrients underneath. And it's, seed on this kind of soil really didn't stand any chance at all. Uh, it doesn't reject the seed out of hand, perhaps, but there's no chance for it to get the nutrients that it needs to grow. It withers and dies. Superficial soil really represents a superficial response to the gospel. Now, what might that perhaps look like? Well, this might des describe somebody who makes a decision to follow Christ, but they do not commit to any kind of church, they don't commit to, they don't, they don't attend church, and because of this, they can't draw any real benefit from the means of grace, from the Lord's table, from the fellowship of the saints, from corporate prayer, and, and I do want to make one thing clear, though. If, you, if you're at home watching this, that's, that's not you. I'm not talking about you. I'm talk, if, you have, if you are taking precautions, then we are, we're delighted that you are, are doing so. But the message there for us is that we need to make sure that we're reaching out to people that aren't coming and making sure that they are still engrafted into the body in some kind of way. So then we get kind of to the third soil. This is the thorny soil. It seems to get closer to maturity, but ultimately it's also invalidated. Uh, it's not part of Christ's crop. The th of the three bad soils, this one probably has the most instructive value for the rest of us. Um, Jesus says in verse 14, These are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. It's probably these kinds of things that threaten our faith most of all. As far as soil is concerned, it's the thorns that grow alongside of fruitful harvest, alongside the seed that Jesus wants to render into fruit. They leach the nutrients away from the fruit-bearing tree, and that kind of poses the question to us, what is, you know, what's leaching our affections away from Jesus Christ? What's leeching our attention away from Jesus Christ? What kind of things do we allow to define us? That's a question every one of us has to, has to answer. The three things that he warns us about here, love of riches and pleasures and cares of the world, cares of this life, these are especially dangerous, and he wants us to know that. I mean, we've all got things that God has called us to steward, our possessions, our occupations, our families, our bodies, our time, our money, all these things. But when they get a due proportion of attention or affection from us, then they threaten our fruitful relationship with God on an ongoing basis. Do you, do you ever put a higher value on your possessions in this world than you do in your position in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Jesus' message, of course, is inherently about values. What do you value the most? And if you're not sure, 
ask yourself, where do you spend most of your time? Where do you spend most of your money? What do you, where do you spend most of your resources? That'll reveal a great deal about what we treasure the most. And God, of course, has blessed us with these things, but they're to be used for his glory. He gives us these things as gifts, but when we assign a higher value to them than we do to the giver of the gifts, then something's wrong. Of course, this applies to every one of us. That's, we all have unprofitable habits that we need to ask God to rein in, to restrain, so that we can make more room for him in our lives. We all have things that are out of proportion. The cares of this life can also perhaps be things that cause us to fall away from Christ. And let me be provocative and say right now that the cares of this life are pounding at the gate because of the current situation. No matter who you are, it doesn't matter who you are, but the cares of this life are pounding at the gate and demanding that you abandon an eternal perspective of your life in Christ and start thinking about the cares of this world on their own terms, on the world's terms, rather than on God's terms. They are front and center, and if we want to overcome them, then we need to hold fast to the one who says that in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's Jesus. That's our Lord. He's overcome the world. Last, we come to the, the good soil. Now, what makes soil good in real life? It receives, and that's it. It receives, and it continues to receive. It receives seed. It receives water. It receives life-giving nutrients, and that's, that's what good soil does. In one sense, it's entirely passive. These are those who, hearing the word, as Jesus says, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Easier said than done, right? Especially in a world that is so fraught with thorns and thorny circumstances all the time that just bear on us and pressure us to give them our resources. That's interesting because one of the marks in the, of fruit in the Christian life is a recognition of the thorns in our life that need to go. Why do I say this? Because I say this because bad soil doesn't care what kind of fruit it bears. So if you're considering this passage introspectively, if you're thinking about how this applies to you, then that's good fruit right off, right off the bat. You may feel like, I've got this one sin that I keep nurturing, or these, this one habit that I know doesn't bring glory to God, or like all these, these unwanted oppressive thoughts that are always crowding in, and I, I just want them to go away. I wish they'd be taken away. That's sucking all the vitality out of my communion with God. And that kind of awareness is the fruit of the Spirit. That kind of awareness is a fruit that only Jesus can bring out of you. So we can be grateful that the Word does its job in that way. Because Jesus wants to bring fruit out of you. He will deal with your thorns if you're patient, if you continue to receive the life-giving Word. I mean, what was the crown that he wore? He took the thorns on his own head so that they could be out of your life. They, could not, they wouldn't threaten to encroach on your ongoing communion with God. But we have to continue to receive. Thorns have been a reality of our existence since the fall. I mean, what was, what was the curse when 
right after, part of the curse was <laughs> that God said, thorns and thistles the ground will bring up for you as you go about your work. But the promise that we sing every year from the hymn, what is it? It's he comes to make his, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. What a relief that is. Praise God for that. So thorns can never take away more sustenance than Christ can give you if you continue to receive from him. That's the message. Because our sower, our God, is a giver. And he never runs out. In his infinite character, he is able to give infinitely. There are always, there's always more for you if you ask. One th- funny thing about this, if you look at Galatians 5, you'll see that one of the fruits that Christ wants to bring out of you is what? The, it lists the fruit of the Spirit, and one of them is patience, right? So he says, we bear fruit with patience. So what are you saying? It, it takes patience to get more patience? Well... Yeah, in one sense, but in the passage here, the original language word really is perseverance. And that's where, in addition to the passive part of receiving, there's the active part of holding fast to Christ in an active sense. It's something we have to do. We, had, we, we receive, and then we respond. And our response is to hold on to Jesus, just to hold on. Perseverance means we hang on even when we feel like we're not going anywhere or, when, or we feel like we're not bearing any kind of fruit, and that's the active sense in which good soil does its work. And, of course, we get another mystery out of that, don't we? It's, we have to hang on to Jesus, and the only reason that we can hang on to him is because he hangs on to us. We sang it in that song, he will hold me fast. That's what he does, and that's why we can hang on. Sometimes mysteries like the ones shown in this passage are just frustrating to us. And that's part of the Christian life. Maybe the reason that something has happened to you in your life has been withheld from you in God's providence. It's proven to be elusive, perhaps. What's the answer? Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to his word. Hold fast to his promises. Our natural minds, our pragmatic, especially our American minds, especially don't want mystery. What do we want? We want answers, right? We, we, want, we want our reaction to this parable a lot of times. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but it, I'll raise mine. But it, it, when I first heard the parable, I was like, tell me how to be the good soil and let me get on to chapter 9. That's, that's, that's not what it's about. We want the 10-minute YouTube length puzzle for life, or answer for life's most perplexing issues. But the more we go on in the Christian life, we realize that Jesus doesn't want to give us the answers all the time. He wants to give us something much more. He wants to give us himself. He wants to give us his spirit. He wants to bring us into fellowship with the triune God. You see, Jesus loves us enough that he doesn't want us to become emboldened in our independence. He wants to foster our dependence on him. And this is a purpose that mysteries like this serve. When we come to the Lord's table each week, we receive something that's it's called a mystery. It's the mysteries, of, the mysteries of God that's received. When we receive the Lord's table, it's a physical manifestation of the gospel that we receive. And it is mysterious. And... 
You might still be saying to yourself, well, I mean, I wanted to know how to become the good soil. Like, are you going to tell me that? And thankfully, the, the soil analogy kind of breaks down at this point because soil can never be anything other than what it is. <laughs> but every one of us, thankfully, is more than soil but soul. And Jesus is more than a gardener. He's also a great physician. He specializes in taking out hard hearts in putting in new hearts, hearts that desire to receive his message and follow him, and he does it through the word. So if you're, needed, if you're in need of that word, then receive it today. God will give you a new heart that receives the seed of the word and starts growing heavenward because that is his character. God gives. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, but you felt like you've had a hard time receiving, just hearken back to his character and remember that all, above all else, he gives. He gives grace. He gives growth. He gives goodness. He is the giver of every good gift, and he can sustain you with that same grace and nourish you until the day that he gives you eternal access to the tree of life, and the thorns of this fallen world can never again threaten the joy that you have of being in his presence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your many gifts. We thank you for the gift of the word. Thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit. Lord, we desire to be those that bear good fruit. And Lord, please give us joy unspeakable that comes only from the knowledge of you and from the knowledge that you hold us fast and that none can deliver us but you. Lord, let us hearken back to the deliverance that you've promised. You've promised that you will be our God and that we will be your people. So Lord, honor that promise today. Make it, make it something real as we receive the Lord's table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.